0: Hello, my name's Jane Daker. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order, so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Today, I'm talking to Professor Wendy Reed. Wendy started her career in obstetrics and gynaecology. She went into this because she was so overwhelmed at seeing her first baby born when she was a medical student. And since then, she's continued to have an interest in obstetrics and gynaecology. But she also moved into education where she felt that she could do more. And she rose to being the Medical Director of Health Education England. So she managed and organised the education and training for countless trainees. She's now working for NHS England and is going to tell you about her career story. Wendy, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure. And what I'd like to do is to just ask you to take me through your career journey so far. So over to you, Wendy.
1: Oh, goodness. Um, Well, yeah, first of all, it's a real pleasure to do this. Um, And it's always interesting when you look back. Um, And and sometimes we talk about our careers as sort of when we became a consultant or something. But but actually, I think my career journey really started when I was back at school. Um, And I went to a very strict all-girls school. Um, I was quite academic. But I liked music and sport. I was sort of one of those all rounders and hadn't really got much of a direction. Apparently, I'd always said to my parents I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't have much idea what that meant. Um, And I was really lucky. I went on a school's exchange programme to uh, New Jersey, just outside New York when I was 16. And first of all, it was um, the first time I'd ever seen boys um, because it was a mixed high school. and I wasn't doing Latin and you know, history. I was doing film studies and philosophy um, with a very mixed school of three and a half thousand in quite a deprived part of New Jersey at a time when it was the last draft for the Vietnam War. And it was just when Watergate had happened. And I traveled up and down the East Coast with my student friends and you know, joined a march against the Vietnam War. Um, uh, one of the people in my year, cause we were with kids a couple of years older, that's just different in schooling. He was killed in the last draft. Um, and I came back after term and a bit to my English strict girls school. Uh, I cut my plaits off. I'd got the crew cut and I was chewing gum. And my headmistress told me I got two weeks to lose the American accent. Um, But it made me realise that there was a different world out there, and I was different. Um, And I then, I think it gave me confidence to sort of decide what I wanted, and I wanted to be a doctor. And I uh, was made head girl, um, which was my first leadership appointment. And I had no idea I was going to be head girl. Um, I think if I'm really honest, I probably wanted to be. But again, I had no; I didn't articulate the reasoning behind this. Um, but as head girl, I was really keen that you know, we were a girls' school, and what did that mean? And I remember starting to understand feminism, starting to read things. Then and this was way back in the you know Andrea Dworkin days and that sort of thing. Um, and feminism was was exciting, but quite quite scary. Um, you, we could be very safe in our little, but I think having been to the states. I was prepared to speak up for that. Um, I didn't do very well in my A-levels and I had a place at Barts um, and they wouldn't give it to me because I hadn't got a good enough grade in my physics. Uh, And I remember being completely distraught uh, and having great parents that said, do you want to do this? If you do, redo your physics and apply again. Just completely straightforward. And I ended up at the Royal Free, which was unbelievably lucky, because the Royal Free in those days still had a very strong female history to it. Um, I met uh, the brilliant Professor of Anatomy, um, and she was the first really influential person apart from my headmistress at school, and Ruth just decided we could do anything. Um, I wasn't terribly good at medical school in the sense of exams. I had an awful lot of fun, did lots of music, uh, lots of sport. Met my husband after three weeks. and uh, We got married in my final year. Um, and the then Dean told me that, first of all, my marriage wouldn't last because nobody wanted to be married at that age. I was 23 the day I got married. and. Um, I wanted to be an obstetrician gynaecologist, and that was useless if I was going to be married. And that my husband wasn't terribly good. He wasn't very impressive. He wouldn't make anything of himself either. I'm very pleased to say that we're still married after 43 years, and he's a very successful GP, and I think I've done okay, so um, I, I proved that wrong. But it was, medical school wasn't, I wasn't really comfortable with medical school until I did Ops and Gyne. I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist, and I absolutely loved psychiatry, but I hated the fact that everybody smoked, um, so quite a facile reason, but I found it really uncomfortable. You come out stinking of smoke. And I absolutely hated the postcode lottery. I couldn't believe that the first thing you did was look at somebody's address to decide whether you would accept them as a patient or not. I found that really challenging. Um, and so I, I spent the first year and a half of clinical training very anxious about what was I going to do. Um I wasn't terribly coordinated. I couldn't hear very well, so the stethoscope, it all seemed all a bit confusing. Um, and then I remember sitting in the pub opposite the Royal Free, which for those people that might know that hospital, it's very close and it was at one point where all the doctors used to hang out. Um, I remember sitting there as a student the day before doing up and guy thinking, God, this is going to be absolutely awful. You have to do things, you have to be practical. And on the first day, I was being shown around the lay board as one of those little tours of scared medical students. And this midwife called Vicky Kissidou uh, came out of a room and said, I need some help and grabbed me. And I ended up putting gloves on badly. And again, those of you that try, you know, when you're stressed, you can't put surgical gloves on. You look ridiculous. Um, And I helped deliver a baby. Um, and it was genuinely a Damascus Road experience. And I honestly never left Labour Ward after that. I don't think I did much more of medical school. Um, I hung around Labour Ward, uh, delivered babies, uh, did locums for house jobs in Guinea as you could do in those days. Um, and I just knew that this was something I wanted to do. I had no concept of what the career was, I didn't know there was a Royal College, I didn't, I didn't look into it logically at all. I just knew that delivering a baby was the greatest thing on earth. Um, and actually I still think it is. Um, so I did my, started my training at the Royal Free. Um, one of the consultants says, wise man said, you're a woman. They won't think you can operate, go and get a general surgical job and prove them wrong. So that was probably the first career advice I'd had. Um, good advice, perhaps not delivered in the way we would these days, but it was good advice. So I went to Brighton and did a year's surgery, vascular surgery, colorectal surgery and plastics, which was brilliant and fun. Um, and then I got onto what was then the rotation of choice, the Queen Charlotte's rotation. And at that point, um, 80% of consultants south of Birmingham had been through Queen Charlotte's. It was a production line. And Charlotte's was an unbelievable experience because you were there with the best of the best. I mean, the people, I was in awe of my colleagues. They were just brilliant. Um, The teaching was fabulous and it was relentless. You weren't allowed any leave. Um, You were six months there and your leave was the end of your job. You got three weeks off at the end. That was it. Uh, We worked shifts, uh, really intense shifts. Um, But I learned the trade and I had the opportunity of working with a dozen or more consultants, all um, men, of course. And so you saw different styles and different approaches. And uh, then I went to the Hospital for Women's Soho Square uh, to do my gynae. And that, again, was a, a gynae factory. Um, and by then, I, I was lucky. I realised I got a good pair of hands and operating. I could think three-dimensionally. Um, so I loved that. Did all the rotations. Ended up at the Royal Free as a senior registrar and got a consultant post at the Royal Free. Uh, and then I sort of looked around and thought, what's next? And indeed, the night I got my consultant post, my mum and dad and husband, we were in my flat and we were celebrating. And my father, who knew me quite well, turned around and said, so what are you going to do after this? And I was like, I've just got a teaching hospital consultant job, dad. And what else is there? But he was quite right, because actually very soon I realised that that wasn't enough. I wanted something more. Um, I'd always been interested in teaching. Um, in fact, I'd started an ethics teaching programme at the Royal Free, because there wasn't any. And as an opposite Senior Registrar, you know, we, we deal with ethical issues all the time. Um, but I'd never formalised that thinking. And I got involved in some college work. And it struck me that, you know, knowing more about this was really important. And then I met a couple of really influential people. One of them was you, Jane, and started to understand the academic structures behind assessment Um, and the so what is the purpose of the education that we're offering people. And it was the so what that really got me interested. Um, And the fact that education is so much more than doing things and much of my training had been about doing a procedure well having managed this, having seen that. When in fact, of course, the job, particularly in obstetrics and gynecology, is about communication and empathy and understanding and kindness and all the things that make a professional. Um, And I then had a decision to make because I was very kindly offered a a senior lecturer's post. I was an honorary senior lecturer anyway, but I was offered a senior lecturer's post or to stay in the NHS. And that was, that was a decision that was quite hard to make. Um, But I have academic leanings, but I'm not an academic. And the the senior lecturer's role was not something that I felt would give me the breadth that a London teaching hospital role would do. And in those days, we had our own research fellows, we had our own systems. So at that time, a teaching hospital job in London, I supervised, master's degrees, two PhDs, did active research and teaching everything. We weren't divided into academics and service. It wasn't like that. So I stayed in the NHS and went up the college ladder, Uh, regional advisor, got involved in the exam committee. Um, And I remember at the first exam committee asked me a question about how we set the pass mark, uh, which I think, you know, I've shared with anecdotes with colleagues like you in the past, Jane, but yeah, setting the pass mark was in those days just, well, it's always been 75% or whatever it was. And so being able to bring an evidence base to something as venerable as the membership exam was really quite important. And I don't think I looked at it as, as a leadership role, but it most definitely was. And I think it started to cement in other people's eyes the fact that I was prepared to do something quite difficult. Um I was prepared to work with others to get it done, that collaborative approach. Um, and when I said I'd do something, it would happen. And I think that's partly how you build your reputation is you know, decide what you're gonna do and do it. Um, make sure you deliver. Um, and then um, I was telephoned one afternoon and asked why I hadn't applied for an associate postgraduate
0: dean's job in London. And I was like, well, I hadn't really thought about
1: it. Um, And actually, when I did think about it, I realised that that was sort of what was missing from my consultant post was that chance to influence on a bigger scale. Um, I've always been interested in systems and a wider approach than just my team. Um, And so I went for the interview. And it was one of those job interviews where... As a candidate, I realised that I really wanted to work with these people. Um, I'm not sure it helped my performance, but I was appointed the job. And then that was where I really started to learn differently. So I had to learn about different specialties. I had to develop my negotiating skills because there were no, there's no levers. If you want to change things with a Royal College, you've got to be able to make the case. Um, And I was lucky enough to manage paediatrics and anaesthetics (coughs) nationally. And of course, what that gave me was a whole new cohort of friends and colleagues, um, both in specialties that are quite forward-looking in terms of assessment and structures and learning. Um, And of course, in paediatrics, uh, women as leaders were quite common, and it was fantastic. Um, And likewise, in anaesthetics, and suddenly I met presidents of colleges who were women and at that stage, I had never worked for a woman until I went to the London Deanery. So, despite the fact I'm an obstetrician gynaecologist and, and had had a career in London, I had never had a female boss. Amazing. Um, so, my first female boss was uh, Shelley Heard um, mm-hmm. in the London Deanery, um, and Shelley was one of these. She's a polymath. You know, she'd been a chief executive of an acute trust. She's a microbiologist. She's got a PhD. I think her master's at at University of America is in philosophy. I mean, she's just extraordinary. Um, And she was the person that introduced me to workforce planning. And workforce planning, it did sound a bit dry. Um, But when I got my head around the data, it suddenly occurred to me this was about patient care. And I don't think I'd really quite put all of the bits of my career together until that point that... I'm passionate about the individual patient that delivery of that baby the most important moment in that child's life or that mother's life and then the teamwork of you setting up education processes that sort of thing and then you academia I don't think I quite put it all together as about the system of how we care for patients and how we learn to do that better and workforce planning quite strangely, gave me that insight that if you don't understand your workforce, you don't understand its choices, you don't understand how you get them to the right point, how you retain them, how you encourage them to do differently, you really aren't going to impact on patients positively at all. So I got very interested in that. Um, And at the Royal Free, we were struggling with the cover at night because we had Around 65, 70 young doctors sleeping in the hospital at night, all being called for different things randomly. Um, and we were facing uh, the reduction in doctor's hours called the working time directive. And I thought, well, you don't need to have you know, five different medics sleeping in the hospital at night to do you know, five separate things on the same patient. So we developed a concept called Hospital at Night, which has become a brand, really. Um, And we tested it out. Again, massive support from people like Margaret Johnson, who was the medical director at the Royal Free, another really impressive woman in my life. Um, And we tested it out there. And I didn't know how to run a change programme in that sense at all then. So I learnt on the back of that that it isn't enough just to have the meeting and have everyone agree. You've got to then chase them down the corridor and say, are you sure you know what you've agreed to? Are you actually going to follow it through? So I learned a lot about programme management in the real world then. Um, and then, because of that work, got lots of invitations to speak the modernising agency as it then was, which was part of the sort of arms of the Department of Health, took it on. I got to go and speak to lots of people. Um, met one of my old friends from medical school then, Hilary Cass, who was at Great Ormond Street as a consultant, and then became president of the Royal College of uh, Pediatricians and Child Health. Hillary was trying to implement hospital at night at Great Wall Street. So it was really interesting sharing that learning and working across those professional boundaries. Um, and then on just before Christmas, I got phoned up by somebody from the Department of Health. And you get these sort of slightly strange phone calls. And they said, would I consider being an advisor to the government on um, the Working Time Directive? And I said, no, don't be daft." Um, and they said, Oh, well, do you think about it. Well, I put the phone down and it rang again the next day. And they said, Well, you know, we really think, you know, we do want some senior cleaners. And we've spoken to all the colleges and they all think you'd be great. And uh, I have to say, Never believe that, okay? Um, but something in me said, Yeah, actually, tired doctors kill patients and themselves. And we're not different to anyone else. And I don't care that, you know, maybe surgeons think they're different. They can do 100 hours a week. It's not right. And I've done it. I've worked those punishingly long weekends with no sleep. Um, I don't think I did any damage, but I don't know. And the evidence is that we are not safe when we're that tired. I also had a great friend of mine who, after a long bank holiday weekend in Brighton, had driven his car home and flipped it on the A23, lost a leg, much of his brain, and he had two young children at the time. And we were summoned to the chief executive, it wasn't called that, the managing director at that time in the hospital, and told that if we felt tired, we should stay in Brighton, we shouldn't drive home. I remember at the time thinking, that's not right. That's not how you fix these things. So actually, the working time directive for me was much more about safety and the <coughs> safety of my colleagues and our patients than it was about the hours that we work, the government, Europe, or whatever it might be. And that was a lonely job, very lonely, because actually the profession didn't want to change. Uh, profession read, professions don't change, that's not their job. Their job is to be conservative. Um, but this was going to be the law of the land. Um, and we had to do something. Um, and so I learned how to work with the Department of Health then and I made some really good friends. They were really, really hard-working public servants. Um, I also learned to work with politicians, um, some of whom were fantastic, some of whom were more challenging. Um, but I have actually got considerable respect for politicians because they put themselves out there, they have a job to do, and our job as the experts or the advisors is to speak the truth to them um, and to help them see how they can deliver what is their public mandate. Um, it's not about taking sides or or you know, rolling over for them, or whatever the terms we use. It's actually about being true to the purpose of your role. So I learnt a huge amount about that. I had great fun going off to the European Commission presenting English data and realising that quite a lot of Europe weren't doing the same, but it was a very interesting experience. Um, and then I came back into my postgraduate dean job as I was then in London. Um, and London was reorganising and I wasn't very happy, actually. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted to be. Uh, and I was really sort of thinking, do I go back to clinical work? Do I look for um, a role in a medical school? I wasn't really sure what I wanted. But I felt there was much more to be done in the postgraduate space. But London was taking an approach of a lead provider, which was you know, one big organisation would run training for others. And I, I, that didn't feel quite the way I supported it. I absolutely accept it was what London wanted to do. And I was the square peg in the round hole. Um, And I was lucky enough to be elected vice president at the College of olsen at that time. And that was fantastic because, first of all, it gave me that professional sense of belonging again. Um, I I love colleges. Um, There are times during HE when they've driven me crazy. Um, But I love the ethos of coming together for the good of the patients we serve and... Yeah, all of that stuff that goes with that. And I had a really very happy few years there as vice president. And in that time, the arms-length bodies were formed after the 2012 uh, reorganisation of the NHS, known as the Lansley reforms. Health Education in England came along. I was in India on holidays and my phone rang again. And um, it was a chap called Chris Well, She said, why haven't you applied to be medical director of HE? I said, or didn't the girl was eligible? And he goes, get your application. So I sat in a lobby of a hotel on one of those business things, sending my CV. And if any of you have ever applied for a job through an NHS job, you know how to trial that is. Um, I was lucky enough to be appointed the first medical director of HE. So I joined HE as the medical director um, and then became the director of education and quality, which was important because that was a multi-professional role. So for the first time, I was responsible... Uh, across the healthcare professionals, which is really exciting, because much of the work in hospital night had been about a wider clinical team, understanding workforce. You don't, we don't work in isolation as doctors, so what's the point of knowing about the medical workforce if you don't understand the clinical team context? So it was perfect. And this was the first time we'd ever brought all of the processes together in England. They'd always been separated either into regions or locally. And it was a chance to change things, um, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, So, building the organisation took three or four years. Um, It was really quite difficult because not everybody wants to be put into a new system. Um, And working with the postgraduate deans and and colleagues across universities, there had never been a single organisation that said what we want from medical schools, there was regulation and there were individual medical schools, but there'd be no NHS voice saying, Well, actually, we want this. Uh, and the way the ARBSAC bodies were constructed was that we had an annual mandate from the government. And our first mandate was that 50% of UK graduates, English graduates, should go into general practice. Well, I had to think about how on earth we'd have those conversations. And indeed, my first conversation with a very venerable dean of a very venerable medical school did not go well. (laughs) Um, And so just it being the right thing wasn't an argument that we could make. So what I learned to do is to build a team. And I have a fantastic team around me of real experts. And they range from data analysts, people that really understand quality, people that really understand yeah, human factors in decision making, all those sort of things. I've learned a huge amount from them. Um, but we have delivered quite significant change. Um, yeah, big stuff from five new medical schools, um, small stuff around changing how women in medicine can take time off. Um, and if you take time off having funded return, that you can go and practice your skills, uh, you can check in and make sure you're ready to come back and you're confident. Um, and none of these things can happen without funding. Um, and negotiating that funding is always challenging, but that's been my job. Um, it's also been fantastic working across all the colleges, all the regulators all the medical schools, that, that sort of big-picture stuff I've really enjoyed, um, and I think we were lucky in that we had a very consistent political message, because we had Jeremy Hunt as Secretary of State for much of my time, although I have now worked with 13 Secretaries of state of Health in various national roles, um, but I have to say that the one thing about Jeremy Hunt is he asks you really difficult questions, but you could have a discussion with him and say, can't do that, but we can do this. And as a politician, that's his job. You know, he's, he's there to ask these difficult questions. Um, but that consistency there and the support from Department of Health colleagues, I think made HE successful. Um, uh, and during that time, you know, my own personal skills have developed significantly because I've, I've learned a lot more about the other professions. And we all have different cultures in our professions. And it's been fascinating working particularly with Suzanne Rustrick, who's the Chief Professional Officer for Allied Healthcare Professionals. She's unbelievably impressive. Um, but she has to work in a very different way to me with medics. And yet we're trying to achieve the same end. So you know, we've both supported the advanced clinical practice work. Um, and that's now delivering hugely, not only better careers for people with aspirations but actually really important element of service now um, and see how Suzanne did it, how I did it. That's been a really fantastic way to build things.
0: So just a a, a question for you. You must have had to, you've talked about some of, a lot of the lovely people you've dealt with. Not everybody comes across as lovely. How have you dealt with the, the refuseniks and the tricky customers? Well, I think, um, yeah, 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 in the room,
1: um dissent is healthy. You know, it may not be what you want, and it certainly isn't often what I want. But actually, if you're in a room where everyone agrees with you, you're not, you're not doing the right thing, you're not asking the right questions. Um, and dissent is often based on fear, lack of knowledge, um, a sense of being pushed into something you don't want. Uh, so we go back again and we go back again and we go back again and again. And I think sometimes you have to realize that it might actually be your style that isn't working. And that's why I've got such a fantastic team around me because we can put someone else in that space they might do better. So it's about not bringing your ego into those conversations, being clear about why you want something and that amazing word that gets things done called compromise. Um, and nobody has the right answer. There are a number of ways in which you can get to a right answer. And
0: that's something I've learned through each year.
1: It's about working with and through and round, and accepting that there are some things that are a great idea at the time, but you'll never get landed. So don't hang on to them. Move on. Yeah. You know, don't don't cling on to the one thing. Um, uh, and that's why these retrospectives are looking back. You think, gosh, I haven't thought about hospital for for ages. I don't need to think about that. I'm not involved in it. Lots of other people are doing it. Um, so I think it's be generous with your. Your ideas uh, don't hang on to them because nobody owns ideas. Um, let them grow and flourish, and be prepared to put them out of their misery if they're really not going anywhere. Um, and that's how we've worked. We we've had to work like that. We don't we don't have you know we're not we're not an organisation that can buy things. We don't we don't buy our way into things. We're not rich. We have public money, so we've got to make sure it's really well used. Um, and in the public sector. There are people with very strong opinions but also with brilliant ideas. So dissent is difficult um, and sometimes frankly you just have to wait it out and say we're not going to get this done in this area, this individual does not want to work with us, let's think again.
0: So HED has been incredibly powerful and hugely effective and is now going to be merged into NHS England.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think it's time. Actually, about that. I mm-hmm. think it's it's interesting. So um, yeah, I've always got some personal sadnesses because if I could have written my job description when I was fifteen, I'd probably have written the one I'm in now because it's just brilliant. Um, and I've been very happy um, and enjoyed successes and challenges and everything. Um, but I, I actually think it's the right time. I, I think sometimes organisations continue too long. Um, And what we did was show that education and training was a key enabler of patient care and patient safety. No one's going to go back from that now. Everyone is now talking about workforce, quite rightly. And so I think now is the time to knit together that service planning, financial planning and workforce planning. If I have any worries, it's that it becomes workforce planning for the short term, whereas My business is workforce planning for the long term, Um, but I think that we've created a cohort of individuals who've either been in HE or worked with us or understand us who know that if you don't invest in the future, you can't buy the present. Um, So I'm confident that those relationships will survive whatever the structure is, Um, And remember, it's not just us merging, it's a new NHS England being created. And I think along with the risks, there are masses of opportunities to actually say, what is it we want from a single national body in the NHS in England? And those are questions I think everyone needs to ask as we shape it for the future.
0: And so actually you've got to keep changing in order to keep keep thriving.
1: I do. I think... um, you know, people say, oh, well, we've got colleges and medical schools being around since so the 12th century. Well, yes, but they've all changed. Um, you know, BARTs is not teaching medical students the way it taught them in 13-whatever-it-was.
0: In you know. 23 OK, thank you. <laughs> um, so, we, you know, change is
1: the lifeblood of a healthy system. Um, not change for change's sake, but change that we lead that's not in response to disasters, but is about preparing for the future. Um, and I think it's, this is the, the right churn at this time.
0: OK, so, so looking to the future, what's, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? So I've been very lucky to have the support of my
1: husband over the last 40-something years. Um, he's a GP. He's one of the few happy GPs, apparently, but he loves his work. Um and over the last few years we've been you know thinking about what we want to do. I certainly don't want to stop contributing, um, but I'd like to do it from a different perspective. I'd like to actually be in more of a support space to think differently, to have a bit more space to think through things. I'd like to spend a bit more time
0: with my family. Um, I have a daughter, um, and I'd like to
1: use some of my other skills. Um in a slightly different way. So I'd like to sort of spend a bit more time thinking about the role of the humanities in healthcare education. I'd like to understand, you know, why we're, why we're not so good at caring for people with learning disability and autism. I'm involved in a charity called Artbox, where these are artists with learning disabilities and autism and they're phenomenally skilled. Um, but we're a charity and we're tiny. And we're often all that these artists have. Um, so I'd like to do a bit more campaigning. I'm passionate about women's role in society. Um, and I think we're at a dangerous time. You know, I remember you know, my father as a vicar campaigning for the Abortion Act in the 60s because he'd seen what happened to women who had backstreet abortions. While I was training, we still had women coming in with septic abortions. Um, so, I'm passionate that women's rights need protecting. Um, I'm involved in some women in leadership stuff in medicine, and I want to continue those sort of roles uh, because I think it's time to give back. You know, I've been very lucky, and I want to give back some of that in support in those ways.
0: So, just um, coming to the end now, just one more uh, area to ask you about is is you've clearly had an incredibly impressive and successful career which has lasted for a long time and often with women that uh, results in them having to make compromises in their in, in their personal life. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you manage yeah. that work-life balance and what's worked and what hasn't worked?
1: Well, goodness, yeah, the, the, the compromise word again. Um, so uh, uh, we have compromised. Uh, you know, I, I have never worked less than full time because it just simply wouldn't have been acceptable in my profession at the time. So I, um, I only have one child, I think we might have liked more, um, but I'm very happy with the one we've got. Um, I, I spent a huge amount of my salary, nearly all of my salary on childcare at one point. Um, I had a nanny because there wasn't, there wasn't a nursery that opened the hours I worked um, and I
0: was a surgical gynaecologist. So if an operation went on longer, you couldn't suddenly leave and pick up
1: your child. Um, So lots of compromises financially in that, um, none of which I regret. And indeed, um, I don't think I would have done it any differently at the time. But part of what I've done in HEE is campaign for much clearer support for people that want to work less than full-time and to be valued equally as the colleagues who are working full-time. And I'm absolutely clear that, you know, if you've got your child's kindergarten play That's where you should be. The NHS is big enough to cope with that and we shouldn't have rules around that. We should have a human approach to it. So those were compromises. I suppose the other compromise has been, you know, I've stopped singing and playing in orchestras and that sort of thing, music. Um, I get huge pleasure watching my very talented daughter do these things. Um, But I stopped being in a choir because I just didn't have time. Um, and there's an awful lot of work happens over weekends. Um, so things like just saying, "Mm, maybe it's my turn to take the dogs for a walk and maybe it's my turn to do this. Um, I'm quite tempted by trying to finally prove to the world that I have absolutely no artistic tendencies by doing something (laughs) like an art course. Um, but yeah, just, just living a bit and just taking a breather, um, we're massive opera fans in my family, and I can't tell you the number of times I've arrived at the opera straight from a really challenging day, and it's only halfway through the first act I've realised what I'm watching and I've taken a breath, and then I've gone home and I've switched on the laptop to finish off what I was doing beforehand. And actually to, to spend time in the genius world of music or art without feeling that oh, I've got to rush off and finish something, that, that will be a real gift. Fantastic.
0: Um, And and having had that experience and that successful career, looking back now, is there a piece of advice to maybe younger women who are listening to this podcast?
1: So um, I wasn't very good at taking advice, to be fair. Um, And it often came slightly sideways about what you shouldn't do. And I think that's an awful thing. So I I think where I've settled is it's... um, be curious. If something feels that you might be interested in it, be curious and grab it and do it. And don't let anyone tell you you can't do the job because, you know, why would they be even thinking that? Um, So be curious and, and take some risks because the worst that happens is that you are, you're a doctor. That's the hardest thing you've done is becoming that thing called a doctor. And then we persisted in saying to people, you can't do that, that's a bit dodgy and you won't get that next. Don't don't, don't look at the status quo. Be curious and take your opportunities. I think that's
0: all I'd say. Wonderful advice. So Wendy Reid, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women you'll definitely find something to inspire you.